Are you looking for your next podcast binge to lose yourself in? Let me introduce you to a story that begins with sweet romance but quickly turns into betrayal and the far-reaching consequences of one man's deceit. It's an account told by the women whose lives were forever changed by it. You probably think the stories about you is a podcast hosted by Brittany Art. And it's not just another podcast. It's an exploration of self-discovery, growth, resilience, and healing. And it's all told in a unique format. And this is why I'm so excited about this one. This is Brittany's story, but she doesn't just host it like a podcast in the traditional sense. Through immersive soundscapes and the voices of the women affected by these events, this podcast creates such a unique experience experience that's going to make your headphones glow in the dark. I can't wait to get started and I hope you'll join me. Listen and follow. You'll probably think the stories about you wherever you listen to podcasts. The amazing thing is, is that so much time in our lives, right from childhood, even in ways we don't, are not aware of, our hands, you know, are reaching out for this, that, for the other, I need this and I need that. The amazing thing is that what we don't know is that a lot of that we can give to ourselves. That was Dr. Christopher Germer, and you're listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. Curious what psychologists chat about over coffee? We are three clinical psychologists who love to discuss the best ideas from psychology. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. In this podcast, we explore the psychological principles that we use in our clinical work. And we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. Hey there, just a reminder that I'm hosting a workshop on psychological flexibility here in Santa Barbara at Yoga Soup, Sunday, February 17th. Go to yogasoup.com to learn more about it. So I have a real treat for all of you today, which is an interview with Christopher Germer about self-compassion. And his work has really impacted me both professionally and personally for a number of years now. And it's really shifted the focus of my practice from not just act, but really act with cultivating self-compassion. I'm really excited to share it with you. That's so awesome. What, a, what an important topic and, and what a perfect person to be sharing his wisdom with us. And I got actually an opportunity to go on retreat with him just this past weekend. So the interview was recorded before the retreat, the couples retreat that I went on. And then I've been on the retreat since then. So I wanted to share a little bit about my experience in learning directly from him. My husband and I went together on a couples retreat up in the snowy mountains of California, which is it's hard to believe it snows here, but it does <laughs> if you go up high <laughs> enough. And uh, it was It was so wonderful. I think The main things that I learned from it, well, first is just the importance of getting away with your partner and doing some focused work 
with them and on the relationship. And I know you talk a lot about that, Yael, in terms of the importance of working on our relationships. Absolutely. And we were just talking before we started the recording about how hard it is with young children to get away, but how valuable it is to sort of sneak those moments or to sneak longer periods of time when, when you can get them. Yeah. You know, I'm like pulling out my hair, getting out of the house and like, I can't do this. There's just, it feels like mountains. I have to move to get away for a weekend and I've never regretted it. If anything, I come back and we're like driving home. We got to do that again. When, when, when can we do it again? So it was really, it was a really great weekend in that the focus of it was not only on cultivating compassion for ourselves, but how to do that amidst being in a relationship and how to be compassionate towards your partner. And what I learned in, in that aspect of it was that when I'm practicing self-compassion, when I'm being kind to myself, I can actually regulate myself in a way that I can hear my partner better. And it helped me be able to see him. We actually did this really amazing exercise where we had the partner's eyes were closed and we saw them as a young child and they saw themselves as a young, as a young child. And it oh, wow. generated just the sweetness for them of that they have a child inside of them and they have this whole history of struggles and things that they've been through. And when you see them in that light, it, it, you just can't help but want to be kind and caring towards them. Just like when we see ourselves as a young child or the child within ourselves, we can't just help but want to be kind and caring towards ourselves. I love that. It kind of speaks to me in terms of like the, I, I often talk with couples that I see about the narratives that we build about our partners. And I love that exercise as a way to sort of expand the scope of our narratives, right? Because we see them as an adult in this particular way, but by sort of thinking about them as a child, it sort of brings a whole new angle and really like widens your lens on who they are as an individual. Yeah, absolutely. And then the third practice that I actually wanted to bring back today, and maybe we could even do with the listeners and do with you, Yael, is a really simple one that I think hit home for me, and it's a soothing touch practice. And what Dr. Grimmer talked a bit about is just the importance of so, you know, when we practice compassion, it has many different components to it. It may have how we're talking to ourselves. It may, so the language that we use, like using kind kind, positive language towards ourselves. It may have a component of imagery of seeing ourselves as a young child or seeing, you know, ourselves in a light of that we deserve kindness, just like everyone, a common humanity deserves kindness. But a third component is also maybe an embodied component of how we make contact with our own bodies in a kind way. And our skin has so many receptors on it. And our skin is also a place where from very early on as young babies, we receive soothing touch. And as we grow up, we kind of stop doing that. We maybe, you know, don't get that touch in the same way. And so this practice of soothing touch is really helpful when you're feeling particularly dysregulated or you want to just do some kindness towards yourself, but maybe it's too hard to do the language part or the imagery part. So do you want to try it with me? What I want you to do is maybe close your eyes because it helps you get inside your own body and take some slow, soothing breaths. Breathing in for yourself, a slow breath and out and relaxing your body. And just start by taking your hands and placing one hand in the other and just feeling your hands sort of cupped over each other, feeling the parts that are warm, the parts that are cool to the touch, and just giving yourself some gentle touch on your hands. And this actually may be a place where you could even open your eyes and look at your hands and just appreciate all of the wrinkles on your palms, which are indicators of places where your hand has moved in your history. 
These hands have had a lot of history to them. And then what I'd like for you to do is take one hand and place it on a cheek. And maybe the other hand you can place on your other cheek and just notice what it feels like to have the warm hands on your cheeks or the cool hands on your cheeks. And just notice the feeling in your body of holding your face in this way. There may be an old memory of even a mother placing her hand on your cheek, but just a kindness towards yourself. And then notice what happens when you place one hand over your eyes. If you were to take one hand and place it over both eyes across your face, Notice what that feels like. If it changes the way you feel inside your body, if that feels soothing. And then place one hand over your heart and maybe place the other hand on top of that hand on your heart and closing your eyes and feeling what it feels like to have your hands over your heart and feeling your breath as it moves in your body. What it feels like to feel your own heartbeat. And maybe moving one of those hands down to your belly, noticing what it feels like to have one heart hand on your heart and one hand on your belly. Taking some slow, soothing breaths. Noticing that. And then finally, crossing your arms and putting your hands on your shoulders and giving yourself sort of a hug with your arms across your shoulders and notice what that feels like. Maybe grabbing your shoulders, giving some pressure there holding yourself and then you can let your hands come back down and come back with your eyes open so yeah what was that exercise like for you and did you notice that there were any positions that were particularly soothing for you I, I did notice. I, I think that um, the hands cupped was quite soothing and then the hands on the cheek was quite soothing. So yeah, there was different kinds of feelings that emerged from the different positions. Yeah. And for listeners, you may find that you have a different response for some of my clients. I've actually practiced with them. They find the hands over the eyes is really nice because it helps them go inside. Or for some people, the hand on the heart or the hand on the belly is really soothing. So you can play with this. And what's nice about it is this soothing kind of touch. When you find out what works for you, you can do it anywhere. I'll often do it when I'm in a session with a client. I'll put my hand on my heart or my hand on my belly just as a reminder to check in with myself and to soothe myself down if I'm feeling myself get kind of dysregulated. It's a way to coming back to, to express some kindness to myself. So try it out. Explore what kind of soothing touch feels good to you. And we'd love to hear from you if, if anything in particular strikes you. And enjoy this wonderful episode with Dr. Christopher Germer. Christopher Germer is a clinical psychologist in private practice and lecturer on psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He teaches on the faculty of the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy and the Center for Mindfulness and Compassion, both based in Cambridge, Cambridge Massachusetts. He is a co-developer with Kristen Neff and popular teacher of the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, which has been taught to over 50,000 people around the world. Author of The Mindful Path to Self-Compassion, co-author of the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook, and co-editor of Mindfulness and Psychotherapy and Wisdom and Compassion in Psychotherapy. And his newest book for professionals, Teaching the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, will be released in 2019. So welcome, Dr. Germer. It's really an honor to have you on our show. Glad to be here. Yes. And you're best known for your work on self-compassion, which has its roots in the Buddhist traditions. And teachers like Tara Brock have talked about compassion as being one wing and mindfulness being another wing. 
Can we start by talking about what is compassion and how is it different than mindfulness, which some of our listeners may be more familiar with? Oh, yeah, it's a great question. Thank you. Yeah, so in a nutshell, um, mindfulness uh, focuses on um, loving awareness of moment-to-moment -moment experience. In other words, how I hold a feeling of sadness or how I relate to joy. Um, so it's moment-to-moment -moment experience, whereas compassion focuses on loving awareness of the experiencer or a person. You know, so you don't really have compassion for, say, sadness. You have compassion for a person who feels sad. So in this way, um, mindfulness and compassion are really complementary uh, because, you know, who we are is uh, constructed out of our experience, but our sense of self is also a little different. So... Um, Mindfulness, loving awareness of moment-to-moment uh, -moment experience, compassion, loving awareness of the experiencer. How did you come about this work? Because it seems that you're deeply rooted yourself in some of these practices. What was your path to mindful self-compassion? Uh, yeah, so I mean, I've basically it arose out of mindfulness and I first learned mindfulness when I was 25. Now I'm 66, so I've been at it for quite a while. Um, and, um, yeah, I went on and got a PhD in clinical psychology in 1984, but for the next 20 years of my life, um, I had a lot to say, or at least I thought I did. And, but whenever I tried to speak publicly, I was gripped in fear, in panic. And... I tried everything that a psychologist could have at the time. And I was even a special, specializing in anxiety disorders. And I, you know, tried to make room for my anxiety in a mindful way. I uh, went to my doctor and got beta blockers. I did exposure. I basically took every speaking opportunity. I had everything possible and uh, nothing worked. Um, and it got so bad once that somebody in Santa Fe at a therapy conference where I was supposed to be talking about mindfulness. So mindfulness means like calm, peace, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. And I, I was so nervous I couldn't speak. Um, uh, so this went on and nothing worked, you know, nothing in the armamentarium of what I knew with anxiety for performance and anxiety, social anxiety and so forth worked until I learned self-compassion. And I learned self-compassion at a meditation retreat. And in particular, I learned loving kindness meditation where you just say kind things to yourself as a kind response to suffering. And it was amazing to me because what it did was it allowed me to finally stop trying to be less anxious because I just started to feel better in spite of being anxious. And so whenever I got nervous, I just said to my, I just said to myself, oh, maybe safe, maybe peaceful and so forth. And then I had a big conference at Harvard Medical School and I'd been practicing like this for about four months. And when I got up to speak, 
you know, the terror arose just like it always did, but, but there was a new voice in the back of my head that said, oh, may you be safe, may you be peaceful. May... And then I looked down at the crowd and like you were describing, you know, compassion for self, compassion for others, everybody looked so beautiful to me. And I just had the wish that everybody be happy. So this is a big transformation. So this is basically how I learned self-compassion. I learned it through my own sufferings with public speaking anxiety. I learned it through um, meditation. I learned it through loving kindness practice directed at oneself. And then after this experience, I started to, because it was so revolutionary to me, I asked myself, I was starting to ask myself, like, what happened? So there are a few things that happened. One thing is I realized that sometimes when you have, uh, when you're overwhelmed emotionally, you have to hold yourself before you can hold your experience. Holding experience is mindfulness, holding self is compassion. So I learned that. But I also learned that um, public speaking anxiety is not an anxiety disorder, it's a shame disorder. Mm. And shame means the reason I couldn't touch the anxiety was because um, I was so ashamed. I was, you know, my core beliefs were like, you're fraudulent, you're stupid, you're incompetent. And there was a lot of evidence for that. If I'm supposed to be talking about mindfulness, I can't speak. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. But the cool thing was, I didn't even know that shame was my problem. I thought anxiety was my problem, but the loving kindness meditation addressed the shame without even naming it. In other words, when I got up to speak, I kind of felt like even if everybody in this audience thinks I'm an idiot, thinks I'm stupid or incompetent or fraudulent, I can survive because I could feel the love inside. I can feel the support. I could feel the kindness. I wasn't as dependent on the um, opinion of the audience at that point, you know. So shame is basically a social emotion. It means I'm imagining what you're imagining that I think badly about myself, you know. Imagining your scorn. That's yeah, exactly. Shame. But when you have self-compassion, you actually don't care so much what other people are thinking because your self-worth is not dependent on others quite so much. In other words, your self-worth isn't, isn't based on contingent social support or approval. It's, you're getting it more from an instinctive kindness toward yourself when you suffer. And so that's a really cool thing about self-compassion. It, um, it liberates us from, you know, kind of relentless approval seeking. Right. And frankly, it liberates us from shame. And I think it probably 25 years from now, when we look back, you know, self-compassion came into existence a, in a big way in, you know, let's say uh, 2015 or so. What was the big contribution of self-compassion? I would say as an antidote to shame. Yeah. And shame is ubiquitous in the world and in therapy as an antidote to shame. And that was basically what I learned quite by accident that 
enhanced my mindfulness practice and added this new dimension of compassion and self-compassion. Thank you so much for sharing that. So many of the people that have come on the show and many of my teachers have talked about their own suffering and how it's actually from that suffering that a lot of their wisdom grew. Mm -hmm. And I work a lot with therapists and I actually think it's really helpful for therapists to be able to have that understanding as well and that we all struggle and we all have parts of ourselves that we think if someone saw them, they would be horrified. And it's actually in um, accepting sort of this common humanity of our struggle and being able to approach ourselves with more kindness and our shame with more kindness as opposed to isolation. Because I think that shame sister is really isolation. And for many of us, we go into hiding with those parts of ourselves. Yeah, and also... You know, they, we say we're only as um, unlovable as our secrets. So first we have shame and then we go in hiding about it and it just, it just clings to us. Yeah. You've gone on to research and explore self-compassion with Kristen Neff. And can you talk a bit about what you've researched in terms of the components of self-compassion and how you define self-compassion? Self-compassion is, is really uh, inner compassion. And most of the time when we think about compassion, we, we think about, about it going outward. So when you're compassionate towards somebody else, there are a few uh, qualities um, there are a few processes happening. The first is that you notice the person. The second is that you feel some uh, sympathy for their predicament. The third is that you have a kind of a wish for them to feel better. And the fourth is there's usually action involved, like you might say something, or do something. So uh, self-compassion is really these same qualities directed toward ourselves. When we, do we, notice when we're struggling? Do we have some kind of sympathy for our struggles or do we just kind of, you know, disregard ourselves? Do we have a wish to feel better and can we in fact act on it? So that's really self-compassion. But Kristen Neff uh, nicely summarizes self-compassion with three components. Mindfulness, which is knowing what we're feeling while we're feeling it. Number two is common humanity, which is a sense of I'm not alone, actually. Other people suffer. Um, there's a sense of uh, being with others, actually, in a moment of self-compassion. And then the third component for Kristen is self-kindness, or uh, the ability to respond to ourselves with goodwill and warmth when things go wrong. But in a nutshell, it, it really means um, treating ourselves as we would treat others when, or as we would treat a good friend when such a person is suffering or struggling or feeling inadequate or fails. And it doesn't happen very often. Yeah, one of the assessments that I often give when people first come into my practice is Kristen Neff's self-compassion scale. And what I like about it is, and we'll link to it on our um, in this episode, but what I like about it is it breaks down not only the degree to which you're, how kind are you to yourself when you're having a difficult time, but also sort of the opposite of self-compassion is do you have a tendency to isolate or do you have a tendency to uh, get so over-identified with the struggle? And it can really guide the course of our therapy because 
we can check in and see how that relates to whatever the presenting problem is. Because it may be that the present that you know our problems change over our time over time, but maybe it's the way that we're relating to ourselves in the problem that's causing a lot of the suffering. Beautiful, beautiful, yeah. And yeah. we've also found in the research that um, uh, self-compassion appears to be an underlying mechanism in positive outcomes mm -hmm. of therapy, even across um, different um, theoretical approaches. So if you give a self-compassion scale in the beginning and at the end of therapy, or and the therapy was successful, you're likely to see that a person increased in self-compassion. Mm -hmm. I love some of Kristen Neff's research comparing self-esteem to self-compassion, and I was really surprised by this research. So we think of self-esteem as something that we want to increase in ourselves or increase in our kids, and what she's really found is that there's some limitations to having self high self-esteem, one of which is that higher self-esteem is associated with more narcissism, and that's because it's sort of contingent upon you being better than somebody else. Uh, when you have high self-esteem and it's also contingent upon your own uh, performance so when you're doing well and you're accomplishing things your self-esteem may go up but when you make a mistake or are struggling your self-esteem may go down and debbie and yale have talked i have talked about this in the context of doing a podcast so it's a pretty vulnerable thing to put yourself out there in this way and there's a lot of times that after an episode i'll just feel kind of not great about either my performance or questions that I wished I have asked. And if I were more engaging in the self-esteem model, that would just sort of make my whole being plummet. But in practicing self-compassion, what I'm really trying to see that is as, yeah, that happens sometimes. We all have good interviews and bad interviews. And at the same time, it doesn't impact my core sense of self-worth, that how I perform isn't a measure of, of who I am. And it's been really helpful in that arena. So I was also you know, curious if you could talk a bit more about some of the other benefits that you see with having higher levels of self-compassion. Yeah, um, <laughs> there's a psychologist at Duke University, Mark Leary, who said that the research is, is actually now getting boring because it's associated with just about everything good in mental yeah. health. Um, so, first of all, um, pretty much across the board, there are increases in well-being, such as uh, life satisfaction, happiness, gratitude, self-confidence, optimism, wisdom, curiosity, conscientiousness, creativity, hope, competence, perspective-taking, emotional intelligence, it goes on and on. And also, it's associated with reductions in um, negative states, self-compassion is consistently associated with reductions in anxiety, depression, stress, perfectionism, self-criticism, which uh, underlies a lot of clinical conditions, rumination, shame, suicidality, things like that. The benefits are enormous. You know. But at the same time, I think it's really hard and there's a lot of barriers to acting in this way towards ourselves. And what I see a lot in my practice is either ingrained ways of relating to themselves that they've been doing since they were kids, and maybe they received some of that messaging from parenting or school, or but also some fears around being compassionate. So fears like, if I'm kind to myself, I'll lose my drive or my edge. What are some of the 
the ways that you address the fears that show up when people are, you know, resistant to trying some of these skills? Yeah. So the first thing we do is we, these are what we call myths mm -hmm. or misconceptions because um, the research shows precisely the opposite. So we do offer, at least in structured trainings, the research. So for example, there are five main myths. One is that it's associated with self-pity. In other words, somebody's just going to be curled up in a ball and saying, poor me. But we know that self-compassion, uh, people who are self-compassionate actually take, have more perspective on their problems. They also ruminate less. Another myth is, is weakness, that it will make us weak, but, we, but the research actually shows that it's a powerful factor for emotional resilience. So for example, there's a study that was done in Austin, Texas with veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan, and they found that um, self-compassion self predicted whether or not somebody would get PTSD um, in an inverse way more strongly than severity of combat experience. That means if a person suffered terrible things at war and they had a lot of self-compassion, they're unlikely to get PTSD. So myth number two is weakness, and it's actually a powerful factor for um, inner strength and resilience. Another concern is that is uh, that it's selfish, and uh, what we actually see is there's really no correlation between self-compassion and narcissism, and even the romantic partners of um, people who describe who describe themselves on Kristen's scale as self-compassionate, they are described by their partners as uh, more cooperative, less aggressive, uh, more collaborative. Yeah. Um, anyhow, so the the message is if somebody wants to find a good date, they should send them to Kristen Neff's website. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Take the assessment. Yes. <laughs> Some of the two other myths. One is self-indulgence, and that is that if I'm high in self-compassion, I'll just say, oh heck, whatever, I'll just have that half gallon of ice cream. But we actually find that people high in self-compassion take better care of themselves. They drink less, they eat less, they exercise more. It even boosts their immune system, by the way, health-wise. Yeah. Um, so people balance long and short-term um, goals nicely when they have self-compassion. They usually do what um, what is uh, in their greatest good. Yeah. I love the study you describe in your book where a group of individuals were asked to eat a donut, and then afterwards they were given candy and they were told they could eat as much candy as they wished. That the group of individuals that were told, I hope you, I hope you won't be too hard on yourself for eating the donut. Everyone eats unhealthily sometimes and everyone in the study eats this stuff. They were actually less likely to eat candies and they reported having less distress over having eaten a donut. And this was particularly true for individuals that were working on trying to um, restrict their eating. So I think that that's such a good point of how self-compassion actually can be the healthy way of responding to ourselves, although it's not usually the automatic way that we respond to ourselves. Right. And it's, it's really actually what you're describing kind of, kind of addresses the fifth myth, which is that self-compassion is, is demotivating, that it um, kind of will make us stop 
uh, you know, trying. And what we actually find is that um, people who are high in self-compassion motivate themselves to do things that are good for them in a different way. So rather than with self-criticism, they do it with a lot of kindness, kind of like a coach or an inner ally or a friend. So in other words, a self-compassionate person would say, if something didn't go well, they'd say, oh man, that hurts, you know? But you know what? You can do this. Maybe if you just apply yourself in this way or that, you can do it. Whereas people who are low in self-compassion, they beat up on themselves. They say, you idiot, you're stupid. And, and don't we know it that when people fall off their diets, for example, they just beat up on themselves. And what keeps people from really moving forward is this kind of self-criticism and shame that slips in as we try to develop new habits. So self-compassionate people, they can keep their eye on the prize and not tear themselves down from the inside, you know? for example, on a diet or something. Mm -hmm. How are you teaching self-compassion? Because it is something that you've developed some protocols around about how to actually make change you know, in people's lives. You can see that. Yeah, so, so we have a eight, Kristen Neff and I developed since 2010, a eight session structured uh, self-compassion training program. Um, and I have to say, quite honestly, in the last few years, it's become more of a global community project because we've taught over 1500 teachers and they have been telling us what works and doesn't work all around the world. So, so the program is really quite developed at this point. And um, they've been for uh, randomized controlled trials on the program, very positive results. So it's an eight session program, two and three quarter hours per session. And uh, it basically starts by teaching the concept of self-compassion, mindfulness and self-compassion. It's called the Mindful Self-Compassion Program. And um, it starts by teaching concepts, but very quickly it moves into the felt sense of self-compassion. What does it actually feel like in the body? And uh, then we um, scaffold uh, a lot of practices. There are seven meditations, 20 informal practices for daily life, 14 exercises. So we integrate all this such that uh, when people leave the program, they really have an inner sense of what is self-compassion. Usually they've had a few epiphanies as they go through the eight-week program. Um, and uh, they also have skills for making it a habit in their daily lives. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you really can see people change on this measure. I often work with self-compassion in my practice, integrating some of the the practices that you talk about and also compassion focused therapy. And what I see is it's not that I think that sometimes the automaticity of to, to going to the old way kind of sometimes that sticks around, but what people, what, what I see people start to do is they start to pause a little bit more and notice it at first. And then they actually start to, to choose different actions. So they'll say things like I had a really busy day and then I, paused and thought, okay, how can I slow down here and take care of myself because it's so stressful? And they, they won't even notice that the change is happening and sometimes I'll point it out to them. Of, wow, that feels so different than what you used to do, which was just push through. Yeah, so, yeah, and they don't know the change is happening because uh, self-compassion happens at a very deep level. It, it, yeah. 
happens at the level of intentionality, you know? So when we've got self-compassion, change happens so much easier, you know? In fact, even Carl Rogers says, the curious paradox is the more I accept myself just as I am, the more I can change. So when we as therapists can cultivate this, um, this really key factor in emotional well-being, or when we as therapists can keep self-compassion training as a kind of an underlying theme in, in therapy, we're actually creating a resource which allows people to meet all kinds of challenges in their lives in a new way, often, as you described, that they only discover the new way after the fact. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they have a kind of, it's like a new relationship to oneself, which creates new options, new ideas, new energy. Yeah. Yeah. It's and a, yeah, yeah. cost effective. <laughs> yes. And then it also has this wonderful side effect as, as people become more self-compassionate, they also develop more compassion for others. Mm -hmm. So you, you, write, you write a bit about disconnection as being part of the source of our suffering and how when we're disconnected, sometimes it just is right below the radar, but we end up doing all sorts of things to try and find connection, like eat food or drink at night or go to our phones. And that when we start being more compassionate to ourselves, we also start to have this desire to be kind or maybe even connect with others. So that's the common humanity, I guess, component of self-compassion as well. Yeah, and I guess one reason for that is we find that the nicest thing we can do for ourselves is to uh, be kind to others because we know when we're engaged in, in difficult relationships, it just hurts a lot and we just don't want to do it. So it makes a lot of sense to be kind to others. And it's just a, so much easier to be kind to others um, when we're kind to ourselves, because, you know, ironically, we're, when we can meet a lot of our needs directly, which for many people is like an epiphany, when we can do that, then we take less, we take pressure off our loved ones. They disappoint us less. They seem more whole and delightful just as they are because we're not so needy, you know? The amazing thing is, is that so much time in our lives, right from childhood, even in ways we don't, are not aware of, our hands, you know, are reaching out for this and that and the other, I need this and I need that. And the amazing thing is that what we don't know is that a lot of that we can give to ourselves. I can tell you my own mother, 83 years old, you know, um, shortly before I wrote the, that book, The Mindful Path of Self-Compassion, I asked her, well, two years before she had asked me to teach her some self-compassion things. And then just before the book came out, I asked her, you know, mom, I've, you did you practice any self-compassion? She said, yeah, sure. I said, you notice anything? Was it interesting in any way? She said, yeah. I didn't know I could love myself. She said, I didn't. She was an 83-year-old woman and nobody told her. And in this teacher training, in this uh, training that we do, when we ask people like a year or two later, uh, what do you remember? And they say three things. Number one, it gave me 
permission to be kind to myself. Number two, it reminded me to be kind to myself. And number three, it taught me a few skills, you know? Uh, so this, um, this simple U-turn, you know, our instinct is to be kinder to others. And the vast majority of us are kinder to others than we are to ourselves. And, and the culture says that we should be kinder to others than ourselves, but uh, at a price. So what self-compassion training does is just a simple U-turn. All that kindness that, we're, that we know how to do and can give to others, we can just make a little U-turn and give some of that to ourselves. And, and most people see remarkable changes once they give themselves permission. You write in The Mindful Path to Self-Compassion about compassion fatigue. And you write that this, the signs of compassion fatigue are one, believing that you're indispensable, and two, feeling resentment towards those that you're trying to help. And I was thinking about compassion fatigue in relationship to my own life. When I had my first child, it was a time when I went back to work where I was giving so much and going and seeing clients all day and then coming home to a baby that really needed me and needed to nurse and be up all night. And probably what I needed more than anything at that time was compassion for myself and a sense of that other people were experiencing the same thing that I was experiencing as a new mother, but also just that it was okay if I didn't do everything perfectly. And what made it worse was that I kept my expectations really high for myself and tried to do everything perfectly. Can you talk about compassion fatigue? Yeah, that's a poignant example you give. And, and what we find in the, um, the research is that self-compassion is a antidote to uh, compassion fatigue, that it, um, it's a way of, and it's especially important for therapists because when we talk to people, when we experience compassion fatigue and we talk to, uh, to our colleagues about this, they usually say, well, you know, you should work less or see fewer patients or see easier patients or take a vacation. But the problem is that all of that really means not doing the work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. I wanted to work. Yeah. So yeah. the question is, how do we actually stay in the game, you know, work and also be nourished? Right. So the irony is, is that um, we're actually not talking about um, compassion fatigue when we are fatigued. We're talking about empathy fatigue. Empathy fatigue means I feel your pain as my own, and that's wearing me out. Whereas compassion is sort of empathy plus love. And the brain research shows that when we're in a state of compassion, that the uh, pleasure centers in the brain are actually activated. So we can't actually get um, fatigued by compassion, but we can get fatigued by empathy. But just carrying that one step further, how is it that we cultivate this quality of compassion or love in the face of suffering most easily? And most of us think, now I have to be more compassionate toward others. I can't do that. You know, I've got a kid at home. I've got my plate is full. I just can't do it. How do we do this? 
And the, the easiest way, it appears to me and to many others more and more, is that just like we fall in love, we can fall in compassion. In other words, self-compassion, inner compassion. When we discover that we're just living at our edge, we, if we can see that, in other words, say, yeah, this hurts, or, you know, come back from work and have to give full time to your child, like, whoa, this is hard for me. That's number one, mindfulness. Sec number two, common humanity, which is the sense of, you know, I bet there are a lot of moms in the world that are in exactly the same position I am. This, this is tough. Um, and so that makes us feel not so isolated. And then self-kindness. In other words, real genuine warmth and appreciation of your predicament, even being able to talk to yourself in a way that you might speak to a dear friend who was in exactly that same situation. When we do that with ourselves, when we fall into compassion with ourselves, when we nourish ourselves, our compassion for our patients and for our families will just naturally grow. Mm -hmm. So it's the easiest path to actually generating more compassion. And more compassion is actually the antidote to empathy fatigue. Yes. <laughs> I love that renaming it as empathy fatigue and not compassion fatigue. Because you're, you're right that when we're in a state of compassion, we're not getting depleted That's in the it. same way. Yeah, we don't get depleted by it. We actually get um, resourced by Resourced. Yeah, resourced. Yeah. And I should say, I didn't come up with that notion, empathy fatigue, that was... Um, that term was created by Tanya Singer mm -hmm. in Berlin and by her colleague, Mathieu Ricard, who is one of these monks whose brains they look at all the time when they're studying compassion. <laughs> right. And monks don't get compassion fatigue. Self-compassion really is about allowing ourselves to be fully human. In other words, in all our imperfections, which is really important for therapists, you know. Mm -hmm. We need to be imperfect human yes. beings. It's good, for our, it's good for our clients. It's good for us. Yes. And it's also good for our partnerships. So as I was telling you at the beginning of our uh, show here that I, I, on a pretty regular basis, give my, um, my partner what we call a Homer gift, which mm -hmm. is named after Homer Simpson when he gives uh, Marge Simpson a bowling ball with an H on it for her birthday. Oh. So we call it a Homer gift. And my Homer gifts tend to be retreats. <laughs> Okay. And couple retreats. So this year for Christmas, oh. I've given him a, a couple's retreat for us to come to your retreat in Idlewild. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering, and I'm curious about how you're using some of these concepts to enhance relationships. And what is, give me a little preview of what we're going to do there. Yeah, happily, yeah. This is one of the most fun type of trainings that I do with these couples work. And also so deep. Um, and anyhow, it was the program itself was developed by our colleague uh, Michelle Becker, who's a marriage and family therapist, and she's basically taken a lot of the uh, principles and practices of self-compassion and added them, or just kind of mirrored them, as uh, compassion for our partner. Um, and it's quite astonishing what happens when we do that. So in the, in the actual workshop, what happens is when people are feeling really nourished through self-compassion, it creates a lot of space for them to 
be compassionate toward their partners, but what it also does is create space to see one's partner more uh, clearly and also to be able to speak one's vulnerable truth, which is usually, frankly, how, um, what can I say, how emotionally dependent or how much we really care about the opinions of others and the well-being of others. That whole level of interpersonal tenderness and vulnerability is safe and uh, is expressed in a, in a really simple way that nourishes relationships at a very deep level. So, you know, just to give you an example, um, one exercise we do is a core values exercise where we ask ourselves, you know, what's most meaningful to us. And then if we're not living in accord with our core values, we give ourselves some kindness. And then we bring that toward our partners. Like, what do I believe are my core, are my partner's core values? In other words, what makes my partner shine? And to what, in what ways is my partner actually living in accord with their core values? And how is that not happening for my partner? And then to feel some sympathy for how that might be hurting one's partner. And then to think, how can we make this happen for you that your core values are most expressed in this relationship and in your life? These kinds of things touch people at a very deep level. And people walk out of this workshop feeling, oh, my partner really knows me. My partner really cares that about my happiness. And these kinds of things we often forget in the, in the busyness of life. You know, as we try to get our needs met on the fly, we forget basically how interdependent we are with each other. We forget how much our partner cares about us and wants to be cared for, you know. We basically get close to the bone and the simple truth of human nature, which is all beings wish to be loved. And we have wished to be loved from birth. And we have never stopped wishing to be loved just about all the time, even though it is hurt, which is why we've forgotten that. But in this couple's workshop, it actually feels safe and does not hurt to connect with our deepest needs and wishes uh, because we learn we can actually meet them and we in a, in a partial way can help our partners. That's what we're doing. That's what you're up in store for. Yeah, sounds wonderful. And, you know, actually, I think that that is, you know, our, our wish, sort of at the core, our wish is also for people to be in alignment with their core values. I wish that for you. I wish that for my children. I wish that for my partner. I wish that for, you know, strangers. And to, yeah, to identify that and actually be in that wish is, can, I can feel the pleasure center of my brain <laughs> lighting up. Like it feels good to, to want that for somebody. Yeah. And then there are, there's so many other ways that we can know our partners better. So for example, in the MSC program, we have a practice in which we look at anger. And that's one of the most frightening things for partners when somebody's angry. Yeah. 
but we learn to do a number of things. We learn to see the soft feelings behind the anger. We learn to see the unmet needs behind the soft feelings. And then we actually learn to meet our own unmet needs because not our partners cannot meet all our needs. We learn to meet our own unmet needs in a certain way that it creates space to see and understand why it is that our partner may be angry and to do this without reactivity. Mm-hmm. You know? So there, there are just so many ways that this activating this resource, as you called it, um, nourish uh, both, both partners. And, and you can imagine a workshop like this, <coughs> both partners are developing self-compassion as they are both learning to understand and meet each other's right. needs. That's like amazing. But in couples therapy, I can say that if you only have one person on board, it still works pretty darn well because the best way to change our partners is by relating to our, is to, to relate differently to our partners. And the way to do that in a consistent way is to relate in a new and nourishing, more nourishing way with ourselves. Mm-hmm. So we only need one in a partner, a partnership actually, but in your case, there'll be two. Yes, and then we'll come back as be better parents as well. So it's gonna be wonderful. So I'm really looking forward to your workshop in January, Compassion for Couples in Idlewild, California. And we will put a link to that workshop and also to some other potential workshops that you may have coming up in the new year. And we'll also put some links to your current books that are out, your workbook that's really fantastic for using with clients, as well as your upcoming book, Teaching the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, which will be out in the new year as well. Really looking forward to reading that one. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Germer. It's been a real delight and honor to have you with us on Psychologist Off the Clock. And I also just really, I've been reading your work for a long time, so it's just such an honor to meet you in person and hear from you in person. I really appreciate what you've given me in my own life and my own practice. Thank you. Well, thank you. And it's just been a delight having this conversation. Thank you for inviting me to do so. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com.